Do you ever have problems in your life? Now, there's a silly question, isn't it? I suppose I should really be asking you, how do you deal with the problems that occur so frequently in your life, if you're like me? Habakkuk had problems. They're called complaints in the NIV. And in his book, he sets out a model for dealing with them. Now, he's very honest and very straightforward, as Richard has said. He brings that to God. He doesn't rail against God. He brings his problems to God. And that's the way we should as well. And that's what I want us to explore this morning. The book's a record of a dialogue between the prophet and God Almighty. And each speaks in turn. Dealing with problems? Well, we've already read the first four verses. And you see the questions that are there. How long, O Lord? Why do you? Why do you? And it's the state of the nation in his time that he's worried about. We read violence, injustice, wrongdoing, strife, conflict, And at the end of verse 4, the perversion of justice. These are the things that Habakkuk sees all around him. What do we see all around us that's any different from Habakkuk's day? Now, I want to give you an outline. It's one I've had for a long time. But then I preached in Habakkuk in the 1970s in this church. you remember that, of course. (laughs) That is... The title that Graham Scroggy, you've never heard of him, last century preacher, teacher, writer, gave to the first chapter of Habakkuk. Faith, because faith, remember, as we've learned already, is the central theme of this book. Faith tested. And then I put in a kind of subtitle, The Prophet Worrying. And that's Warren Wearsby. Verses 5 to 11 tells us the unexpected reply that Habakkuk received. The Babylonians are coming. That ruthless and impetuous people. It was the last thing that Habakkuk wanted to hear, especially when God paints such a vivid picture of their might and their cruelty in verses 5 to 11 that we skipped over in the reading this morning. Glance down through it. They're cruel. They're violent, and their strength is their God at the end of verse 11. So, that makes Habakkuk have a a second problem. The follow-up to God's reply. It's an ethical dilemma. Look at verse 13. Why then do you tolerate the righteous, treacherous? Why are you silent while the the wicked swallow up those more righteous than than themselves? In other words, he's saying, how can you, as a righteous God, use such wicked instruments? And from verse 14, Habakkuk compares his people to fish caught in the net of the wicked. That's the Babylonians. But, let's analyze the way the prophet approached the problem. Look at verse 12. Don't begin with your immediate problem. Begin with God. That's what Habakkuk did. 
In other words, restate basic principles, basic truths that you know about God before you come to your problem at all. That's exactly what Habakkuk did. What did he say? O oh Lord. And you notice that Lord is printed in your Bible in capital letters. In other words, it's the word Yahweh. It's the word Jehovah. It's a self-existent one. It's a sufficient one. Sufficient for all problems. Are you not from everlasting, he says. In other words, God's eternal. Unlike the peoples of this earth. Unlike the Babylonians. And he says, my God, my Holy One. In other words, Lord, you're the one who's unable to do wrong. And you come down to verse 13, which says, why do you? Why do you? Why are you silent? And then he says, we will not die. I wonder what he meant by that. We will not die. I think that in his mind, he was going way back to all the promises that God had made to Abraham about the continuing line to David, about the fact there would always be a king on David in David's line on the throne. And we know that came to fruition in our Lord Jesus Christ when he set up the kingdom of God on earth. But Habakkuk didn't know that at the time. He's claiming God's promises and saying, Lord, you are faithful to your promises. And then we have that one that we referred to already, rock. My rock. My strength. He's the mighty God. He is the almighty God. But let me go back to number four there. We will not die. God is faithful to his promises. God's still faithful to his promises. How well do you know the promises of God in the Bible? I I, I can't even... Well, I will begin. But all I've done is to put down three that came to mind first of all the first three promises because I love them from the Old Testament you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on you because they trust in you isn't that wonderful they that wait in the Lord shall renew their strength they shall walk rise up on wings as eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint the steadfast love Lamentations 3 the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It is new every morning. And from the New Testament, I thought immediately of, He who has begun a good work in you will continue to do it until the day of Jesus Christ. Or that lovely quotation from Hebrews 3, which comes from the Old Testament originally. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Therefore we can boldly say, The Lord is my helper. Who can be against me? Or 1 John 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is on the earth, in the world. The challenge to us is, do we know God's promises well enough to apply them to the situations that we find ourselves in, to the problems that we have day by day? So, when your faith is tested, when you're worried, Number one, begin with God, not your problem. Number two, restate basic principles, basic beliefs, basic facts about God that you have. And remember God's promises to us. And then, 
apply those principles to the problem. Put the particular problem in the context of those firm promises and commit that problem to God. That's exactly what the prophet did. In verse 13, he does say, why, why? But he talked it through with God. And he uses the picture of being caught in a net like fish. And then he knew what to do. I will stand at my watch. I will station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me. And if in chapter 1 we have faith tested, the prophet worrying, in chapter 2 we have faith taught, the prophet watching and waiting. Now, let me read verses 2 and 3 to you of chapter 2 in the New Living Translation. Some, not controversy, some confusion about what these words mean, but here's what the New Living Translation says. Verse 2 and 3 of chapter 2. Then the Lord said to me, Write my answer plainly on tablets so that the runner may carry the correct message to others. This vision, this vision you're getting, is for a future time. It describes the end, and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. In other words, God's word never fails. God's appointed time is certain. God's word always comes true. Wait for it. And the Lord sets out two life principles. The first one is human reason. Man's wisdom, which is always inadequate, even evil. Look at verse 4, the beginning of verse 4 in the NIV. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. Verse 5. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. There's one lifestyle. It's by human reasoning. It's by human standards. But, and we've already referred to verse 4, the second half, living by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Those who are right with God will live by their faith. So, we see that God's response was clear. It wasn't a direct answer. But God's word never fails. Something was going to happen to take care of Habakkuk's problems. But it would be in God's time. What Habakkuk could be sure of was that what God had said he would surely do. Habakkuk obviously thought that God ought to be doing something. But he also thought he knew when God should be doing it. That was his problem. Indeed, that was his mistake. Verse 3 tells us very clearly that God had an appointed time, and that wasn't necessarily Habakkuk's. But what God would reveal would certainly come to pass. The crucial point is that God's appointed time was certain. Was certain? Is certain. So God's word always comes true. God's word never fails. 
All of us have problem with time, haven't we? We see things from a short-term perspective. 70 years, maybe nowadays 80, is a lifespan. But God doesn't work in that time scale. It's difficult for us to realize that. But secondly, God's word never fails, but God's judgment is inevitable. And in that next section, as Richard has pointed out, the rest of chapter 2, we have five woes pronounced against the Babylonians that bring the, the prophecy of Habakkuk right into the 21st century. Let me look at them very quickly. First woe begins in verse 6. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. It's woe to the materialists. It's greed, pure greed. We live in a materialistic world where values are based on what a person can amass. Riots in England two weeks ago. And God says, woe to those who pile up, who make themselves wealthy at other people's expense. Remember what Jesus said. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Look from verse 9 to verse 11. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high. That's woe to the politicians. The sleaze. The Babylonians built up their empire and administered it, but God accuses them of doing it by unjust gain and plotting the ruin of many peoples. Today, in this country, I... I simply say MP's expenses, but that's modest in comparison with what's happening worldwide, where rulers amass gain and build their realms by unjust gain to set his nest on high. Look from verse 12 down to verse 14. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. There are the racketeers. Extortion, that links up with the first foe, woe, uh, materialism. Racketeering is, is born out of materialism. The mafia, the drug barons, the cruelty of national regimes down through the centuries. And note the end of verse 13. The nations exhaust themselves for nothing. Well, an epitaph on all those who have gone before, down through the centuries. Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Medes and Persians, Romans, even the British Empire. Where is it gone? When I went to school, every classroom had a large map, a Mercator projection, and up in the northwest, Canada, and right down in the southeast, Australia, New Zealand, and in between, blob upon blob of red. Gone. The nations exhaust themselves for nothing. Verse 15. Next woe. Immorality. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it out from wineskins until they're drunk. There's perversion. And that, of course, was the 
Babylonian Empire, rotten to the core, as the verses from verse 15 make clear. But we can't confine that kind of rottenness to the ancient nations. Can you see television, hear news bulletin, or look at any newspapers without being repelled by the reports of violence, drunkenness, orgies, sexual perversion, everything else which is immoral? And the fifth one, verse 19, Woe to him who says to wood come to life. That's the building of idols, idolatry. Woe to the idolaters. And I put spirituality there in inverted commas. Not only are secular idols, it's back to materialism, but a spiritual awareness and a hunger, which is obvious when we, we note the increasing emphasis on Eastern religions, on personal spiritualism and the worship of self. Then, as Richard has pointed out, three shafts of light in a dark scene. I want to refer to them just quickly again. The righteous will live by his faith. That's the lifestyle of the believer who has been made righteous, who has been made right with God through faith in Christ. God is saying to Habakkuk, trust me. And he's saying to us in the 21st century, trust me. The second shaft of light, the hymn we sang, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk didn't know when God's enemies would receive their just desert, but God did. His time will come. So what God was saying to Habakkuk, what he's saying to us this morning is, wait for me. Wait for me. And that final shaft of light, but the Lord is in his holy temple, that all the earth be silent before him. We have complete assurance that God is in control, that God is at work, whatever the circumstances may be. He's there. He's working. What's he saying to us? He's in his holy temple. Worship me. Got it? Trust me. Wait for me. Worship me. And so we come to chapter 3. Habakkuk's prayer. Probably in the form of a, a psalm. We've seen faith tested. We've seen faith taught. Now we have faith triumphant, the prophet worshipping. Prayer of Habakkuk. And from verse 2 up to verse 15, we have a vision of God's splendor. God appearing from the southern deserts, surrounded by the violence of a mighty thunderstorm. Glance down through it. It's, a, it's an appearance, a dramatic Appearance of God to show his power, his might, the fact that he is almighty. And then, when we've had that psalm, we have the effect on the prophet. There he says, those famous words, I suppose the best known part of Habakkuk. Though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes in the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, none of that. Yet, 
I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Habakkuk, as I've said, didn't know, didn't know when God would answer his complaint and bring about the downfall of the Babylonians who were coming. In fact, I think Habakkuk didn't live to see it. It was 70 years later, at least 70 years later, that Daniel stood before Belshazzar and said, Mini, Mini, Tekel, you farson. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And we read in Daniel chapter 5, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. But that was 70 years later. Now, we have no idea what age Habakkuk was when he made his prophecy. But I doubt whether he was alive then. And yet he says, I will rejoice in God my Savior. I will be joyful. There's the faith of the prophet recognizing God at work in the situation in the difficult circumstances. God wasn't overlooking evil. God was involved. That's why Romans 8:28, which we all know, is one of my favorite verses. But I like the NIV version of it. In all things, whatever you're going through, whatever happening in your life, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We are called according to his purpose. And if you go on in Romans 8, you find those lovely words, in all these things. Paul has been listing what has been happening to him. All the difficulties he's been having, but he's... He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. I suggested we should ring, uh, sing William Cooper's well-known hymn. But um, Richard drew the line of that. Nobody knows it, he says. Why would we? Sometimes a light surprises a Christian. But the words come from Habakkuk, at least this verse does. Though vine nor fig tree, neither their wounded fruit should bear. Though all the fields should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there. Yet God, the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice. For while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. So, when you face problems that life inevitably brings, you must say, verse 19 of chapter 3, The sovereign Lord is my strength, enabling me to go to the heights. Faith tested. You may say, how long, Lord? Why, Lord? That's the prophet worrying. How do you tackle your problems? Faith taught. I will watch. I will look. I will wait. How does God see it? And then faith triumphant. I will rejoice. How is God acting? Let me simply say, how do you tackle your problems? 